Hi, I'm Ariel Demaras, and I'm hosting a new podcast called Vice News Reports. With so much going on around the world, so many people telling you they have the definitive take on the news. We bring you to the news so you can hear it for yourself. From the newsroom that has earned more Emmy nominations than any other news team, this podcast goes where the story is, from conflict zones to the labyrinth of digital life. You've never traveled quite like this. Get the Vice News Reports podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up? I am Machine Gun Kelly, and look, I know Halloween is going to suck this year because there's no trick-or-treating and all that, but I've got a treat. There's a musical podcast that I made with my friends 24K Golden, Ian Dior, and Dana Dentata, and Satan. Well, Satan's not my friend, but Tommy Lee is, and Tommy Lee is playing Satan. But don't just take it from me. Tell him, Satan. Thanks, dude. It feels great to be playing Satan on this podcast. Listen to Halloween in Hell on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or whatever you get your podcasts on. It's the week of Thursday, July 23rd, and we've seen coronavirus surge around the country, threatening a second lockdown in California and surges in Florida, Arizona, Texas, and beyond and dividing our country more than ever around the issues of health, racial injustice, and our looming election. Cancel culture has entered the mainstream, and if everything must go, are our politics and politicians first in line? Cities are covered in protests, government offices are under siege, and the deployment of federal officers to the streets has begun. Is this a preview of the next decade? I'm Clay Aiken, and this week, Politicon and I sit down with George W. Bush's presidential speechwriter, author, and recent signatory to the Harper's Letter, David Frum, and we discuss the problems he sees with President Trump, his take on the long-standing issues holding the United States back, and how modernizing our politics and culture is important. I'll ask him, will the bold proposals he lays out in his book, Trumpocalypse, set the groundwork for bigger tent conservatism? and a more popular Republican Party in 2024? Or will President Trump add another notch to the win column? And as always, we'll ask him, how the heck are we going to get along? Where are you? Are you in Canada? I'm in Prince Edward County, Ontario, about 200 kilometers east of Toronto. Um, Is that where you're from? That's where you're from uh, originally, I am. I'm a Canadian citizen, a dual national, and my wife's family have had land here for uh, about the past 35 years, and we spent every summer uh, for oh, 30 nice. years. How many times in the last four years have you thought, "Screw it, I'm just going back to Canada"? <laughs> well, I, 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 as I say, I, I have a house here, so I am. I am. I'm here a lot, and I'm very involved in Canadian life. Um, so uh, it, the, the, I think one of the, the, the complexities of the Canadian-American experience is you're never sure where you are exactly. You don't think, you don't feel that way a little bit now with the current administration being slightly crazy? <laughs> <laughs> like I feel like I could feel the pressure taken off of my shoulders if I went into Canada right now. Is there, there's, is there not a difference? Have you been in the U.S. since the pandemic started? Yeah, no, I, I have been, um, we, we came to Canada on the uh, 4th of July weekend, um, and we were in quarantine in Washington, D.C. from, uh, we, my wife and I entered the quarantine on the 9th of March, and, and we have been, so we were in lockdown in Washington from the 9th of March till the 4th of July, and then we drove to Canada on the 4th of July. And did you have to quarantine once you got there also? Yeah. 
when you cross the border, you transfer to the land where people take things seriously. So right. uh, you get examined at, at the border um, and uh, there's a lengthy questioning process and they want to know your, your isolation plan for the next 14 days. They want to know how you're mm -hmm. going to get food. Uh, they want to they know um, what you're going to do to go outside because you're not allowed to leave your own uh, premises. Um, and then every day you get a text or robocall or telephone call from the government of Canada checking up on you. Really? So, I mean, and, 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 although, and, and although we're in a very rural place, um, very conservative, everyone wears masks. Is that because of the Canadian mentality in general, or do you think the government's done a better job in general of, of handling it up there? Um, it's because in, in Canada, the mask has not become, um, I mean, Canada has politics the same as anybody else, but uh, the Canadians don't, didn't, uh, did not ideologize the masks. I mean, look, if, if it's cold outside, you wear a coat, right? Left, right, center, whatever your views, if it's cold, you wear a coat. Right. Um, if it's raining- <laughs> That could change here though, there's no raining, telling. <laughs> yeah. If it's, if it's raining, you, you wear an umbrella. And if somebody said, you're not a true liberal or conservative, if you wear a coat when it's cold, people would think that was a, a goofball thing to say. And, and so it's been here um, that uh, it, it's just not something that people argue about. They have they argue about a lot. I mean, it, it, they have very fierce politics about a lot of issues. But the question of should you wear a, a mask when there's a pandemic driven by air, airborne infectious agents? That's a dumb thing to argue about. Didn't you didn't you work in Canadian politics um, years ago when you were younger? You have a very good memory. Um, thank you. I, I, I've been involved in Canadian politics, and my sister is a member of the Canadian Senate. Uh, she's in the right. uh, she's in the Conservative Caucus in the Canadian Senate. Now, what's the difference between conservatives? There, there is a difference between conservatives in Canada um, and conservatives in the U.S. Do they have the same meaning? Um, are the would they, are they are they parallel to each other? Look, there's a, <laughs> until very recently, yes. Um, I think the story of, of American conservatism has been um, people disappearing down a rabbit hole, and we can. It's interesting to think about when when did the rabbit hole <laughs> appear, and when did the conservatives disappear down it. But look, in, in most of the world, in Germany and Canada and Great Britain and Australia, I mean, there are conservatives and liberals everywhere you go. Um, and it's probably just part of the chemistry of the human brain. But the, the idea that you would have these, uh, this kind of anger against the modern world, that you'd be so uncomfortable with the way things are, uh, you'd have such suspicious attitudes toward your, your fellow people. Um, that, that's... I think that is something that has really gotten a grip on American conservatism in recent times in a, in a way that uh, will seem strange, really, almost in any other developed country. You know, Angela Merkel in Germany is, is a German conservative, and um, uh, and by the standards of, of German politics, she is quite conservative. And uh, Emmanuel Macron in France, the president of France, uh, definitely is not of the on the left side of French politics. Uh, but there's something that is different about the way the United States does politics from other developed countries. And we are now paying the price in suffering and sorrow. Right. So when you moved from Canada, you went to college here. That's how you got here. Is that right? To the U.S.? Well, it's, it's more complicated than that. I mean, Canada and the United States are so entangled. So um, my uh, uh, 
my mother was a U.S. citizen who spent most of her life in Canada. Uh, then I went to school in the United States, um, went to law school in the United States. But um, I, I've been I've lived on both sides of the border through much of my life. I was naturalized a U.S. citizen in 2007. Um, I had the same um, biography as Ted Cruz. I, I like to say I'm, I'm as American as Ted Cruz uh, <laughs> in that I was born in Canada to a a, a, a U.S. citizen mother and a Canadian citizen father. But because I'm a little older than Ted Cruz, the rules in place were different when I was born. And so I, I, I had to naturalize rather than be American from birth, as, um, as, as he is, of course. Right. So, but I guess I'm curious a little bit about how you ended up, if, if you came from a, a conservative a Canadian conservative background and your interest in politics in Canada was Canadian conservative. Was it the same? Was it a very natural progression when you started in the U.S. to be a Republican? My background was not in Canada, was not conservative at all. Um, oh. my, my parents were very, very liberal. Um, and uh, my mother, there's no reason you would know this, but my, my mother's a very prominent journalist and broadcaster in, in Canada. Um, and, uh, uh, um, hosted a radio show and a television show. She died very young, tragically, but um, through for 20 years, she was a dominant presence in Canadian media life. And, and she was someone who was definitely, she, she got a little more conservative as, as um, she drew near her end, but um, she was someone who was very liberal. My father, who was a, who was a, a businessman, he is also no longer with us. He was also um, pretty liberal. Uh, and so uh, my sister and I actually had politics that was different from our parents, so you're Alex P. Keaton. We were reacting to the time. <laughs> right? <laughs> a little bit like that, yes. I'll have to I'll have to explain that somewhere in the in the <laughs> in the cliff notes for this this episode, because no none of the younger folks are gonna have any idea who Alex Keaton is. <laughs> well, you know, there's a lively online debate that if Alex B. Keaton were real, and if you were alive today, how would he have voted? And ah. uh, would he be pro-Trump or never Trump? And, and I, I, I am strongly of the view that if Alex B. Keaton were alive today, he would have voted for Romney in 2012. He would have spoiled his ballot in 2016, tried to find some third way out. And right now he'd be giving money to the Lincoln Project against Donald Trump. I mean, you're probably right, but that's sort of the difference between – that's exactly what you were talking about with conservatism then and conservatism now, or or Republicans then, more likely, and Republicans now. I mean, the, I don't know that conservative conservatism and republicanism, current modern-day republicanism, really – are the same do you are, are they do you think that they that the modern republican party even espouses the conservative tenets that you you did during the bush administration or before you know i, I don't have this so sometimes you'll talk to conservatives and they'll say uh donald trump is not a conservative because we have some there are these uh this pure conservatism up in the sky somewhere. And he's not like that. And I, I tend to take this view. Conservatism is what conservatives say and do. And I think there's just no doubt. And, and this is one of the things that is challenging for, for people like me. There's no doubt that the vast majority of American conservatives are sadly aligned behind President Trump. And since that's true, uh, that th they... When they tell me um, you're no longer a true conservative because you don't back Donald Trump, I don't argue with them exactly. And I know what I think. I know what I believe. But if they tell me um, that being a conservative means 
supporting President Trump, I don't say you're wrong. I say, if that's true, so much the worse for conservatism, because no conscientious person, no patriot, no decent person can support Donald Trump. So if your commitments require you to do that, that's on your, that's, <laughs> that reflects on your commitments. I mean, you, you can't say because we share a life story, you and I, that therefore you have to do this wicked thing. I'm not going to do the wicked thing. So if you and if we used to be together, then maybe we no longer are. But it's a division between economic conservatism and social conservative, I guess, right? Maybe a little bit. Is that where is that is Donald Trump socially conservative? I think what happens with, with Donald Trump, you know, I, I just turned 60 um, and I'm I know I don't play golf, but I should. I'm in that the right demographic. I, I find that what happens with a lot of people in my demographic is there's just a part of them that wants to be a dick, but they feel inhibited. There are all kinds of social pressures on being a dick. And then, um, and, and of course, um, cultural leaders and religious leaders and moral leaders and spiritual leaders and political leaders also, you know, you should, you should, you should pretend to care about things and not be such a jerk. And then comes this giant figure of fame he becomes president of the United States, the most central person on earth. And he's just the biggest dick ever. And I think there are a lot of people in, especially in my demographic, who look at that and say, that's tremendously liberating. I used to think I couldn't do that. And now he shows me that, it, that I can. And there was something about him that just, I mean, I, I've written about this in my books about Donald Trump. I don't spend a lot of time on his psychology. But his one superpower, he's not very well informed, he's got, you know, he's very distracted, but his one superpower is if you have a weakness of any kind, he finds it and he uses it. And he uses it either to break you, as he broke Marco Rubio, or he uses it to recruit you, as he recruited many of the other Republicans. But where your weakness is, he finds it. And I think there are a lot of people, I'm really sorry to say, who find that exciting. Is it a... Is it, define what you mean by dick. I mean, what, when you say that, it, to me, I feel like everything you said, I, I can see in folks around me who are supporters of the president, but I, I don't know if I'm willing, because a lot of my family <laughs> voted for Trump. I don't want to go there yet, but I do think that there is certainly a, there certainly is a, a is selfishness the right word? Is there, a, is there a point when you get to that age bracket where you start worrying less about those around you and start worrying more about what your needs are? I think there is in him a, a cruelty. Um, it's not just selfishness. It's not just the normal um, instinct to think about yourself more than others, which is, which is pretty human. And, you know, and human beings invented religion to um, restrict, to, to, chasing ourselves and making, you know, don't think so much about yourself. Think about, think about others. That, that's not natural, but we, we need to do it. Um, there, but cruelty is aberrant. Most people aren't cruel. Um, most people, if um, they see a person who has heroically overcome a disability are impressed. They don't ridicule that person. Um, most people, if they see a, a woman who has recently lost her husband and is grieving, um, they sympathize with her. They don't mock her. Um, if, uh, if all around them, people are succumbing to a virus and are getting sick and some of them dying, 
um, they care about that. They respond. Their, their sympathies are engaged. That's just that's the way we are as human creatures. And all of that is missing from him. And and those are not the most politically important things about him. But on a human level, um, I, I said on Twitter on the day President Trump was inaugurated, I got a little blowback from this, but I stand by it, that he was the worst human being ever to become president of the United States. And I include all the slaveholders. But do you think that the people who support him and who are excited about him are excited because of those things or in spite of them? I mean, do you think that they're really, I mean, I don't disagree with anything you just said, but I do wonder if those people who are supporting him are enthusiastic about his dickishness or if they're enthusiastic about something else that he, he represents and they're willing to overlook the dickishness part to get that. You, you make a very important point, and it's, it's really important that we be charitable to other human beings the way we want charity for ourselves. So 63 million people um, voted for Donald Trump in 2016, and probably most of them voted for the standard reasons that people vote, which is most Americans aren't that involved in the political process. They use the parties as kind of brand guidelines to help them understand how to vote. It's a way to simplify decision-making in a very right. complicated area where a lot of people are not super engaged. And so a lot of people voted for Donald Trump as they always vote Republican, and the Republican Party is their identity. And, and different people had different reactions. And, and, and so many people, and I know many people like this, I'm sure you do, said, I have other beliefs that are very important to me. And while I don't admire Donald Trump as a human being, I think he is more likely to achieve my views on whatever this issue is. Uh, you know, for some people, it was, um, you know, abortion issues. Uh, there are other people with other kinds of issues, and so you know, he's a, he's an imperfect tool. I'll, I'll live with him. So, my I don't want to overgeneralize about the delight and cruelty that he excites among um, a small number of his fans, but I think among the people who are most active uh, in social media in politics, I think. Um, the, the cruel aspects, that small subgroup, I think they do get excited by the cruelty. So where does that leave then the Republican Party of 2024 or 2022? Assuming, let's assume Trump were to lose this year and in 2022 would be the first time uh, he wasn't on the ballot or 2024 he wasn't on the ballot. Um, what, if those folks are looking, they, if they see something in him that isn't about the dickishness, perhaps, or isn't about the hatred that he espouses. But it's also maybe not about economic conservatism either. Where, where does the Republican Party get, how do, how do, what do you do, or what do Republicans do in 2022 and 2024 without Trump engendering that sort of enthusiasm? Well, that's a profound question. And this, is, this takes us to things you, you know a lot about and talk, talk a lot about. Um, so in, in the first of the two books I write about Donald Trump, I taught, and in the many articles, I talked about how he won the Republican nomination. And the, the secret to that was he just seemed to be aware of things that other Republicans were not. You know, in, um, when Donald, Donald Trump become, declares for president in June of 2015, if you go week by week through those first months of the campaign, you will see that no candidate in, 20, in the 2015-2016 cycle, not Rubio, not Cruz, not Scott Walker, nobody, used the word opioids more often than Donald Trump did. Now, he had no ideas 
about what to do. He had no solutions to offer, nothing useful. He didn't actually back the, the, connect it to anything, but he said the word. And a lot of people who were, who were struggling then with this terrible epidemic, especially in the non-metropolitan part of America, said, that's a guy who, who hears me. Um, he talked about immigration um, at a time when other Republicans had nothing to say about it. He kept promising to defend Social Security and Medicare. Now, again, insincerely, and he didn't even know what he was talking about, but he, he was touching things that were alive. And the other Republicans, I mean, I've been at this woodpile for a long time and talking to my party about how, you know, I, I knocked on doors for Ronald Reagan in 1980. Yes, I'm, I'm that old. Um, I supported the elder Bush in 88. But I'm not so old that I have lost sight of the, the issues that, that those leaders, those great leaders dealt with. They were great leaders because they dealt with them successfully. And when you deal with an issue successfully, it's not an issue anymore. No one votes to say thank you for the past. They vote for the future. And increasingly, after the world financial crisis hit in 2008, Republicans were talking about things from what to most Americans seemed like ancient times. And Donald Trump was talking about now. Uh, and that made him powerful. That was the example how he that. won the nomination. What do you mean by ancient well, times? Well, um, uh, Marco Rubio uh, uh -huh. gave his set piece speech, would say, and he, had, he has an inspiring life story. You know, his parents were immigrants, his father was a waiter, his mother was a house cleaner, and he's a United States senator and candidate for president. And he'd give these speeches about how there's no country on earth where you can start from nowhere and become something like in the United States. So, um, a this platitude. Is a uniquely American thing. Well, it's not only a platitude, it's untrue. It's untrue. Uh, right, right, right. If you are born in the bottom third of the population in Denmark or Germany or France, you are more likely to get out of the bottom third than if you're born in the bottom third in the United States. In fact, compared to other developed countries, the United States is one of the worst for upward mobility. It's not a platitude. It's a fantasy. It's a description of a country that we used to be. It doesn't talk about the country we are now. So, you, you know, you, you're making people feel good by not engaging with the reality. And you know what? The typical voter is not that political. At any given time, maybe they don't know the name of their member of the House of Representatives, but the typical voter is the world's leading expert on how that typical voter himself or herself <laughs> is doing. And if you, lie, if you lie to them about that, you lose them because they know. They know how they're doing. But do you not think that the parties have benefited? I mean, as you were saying that it used to be with Reagan and Bush and Clinton and, and Carter and whatever, that we would fix the problem. It's not a problem anymore. Do you, do you think that there has not been in the past 15, 20 years almost a, a lack of desire to fix problems simply because then you don't have anything to run against? I mean, it has... has Fixing healthcare been a priority for Republicans. Um, if if they fix healthcare, then they don't have healthcare as a as a issue. I think there I think that there are people on both sides of the aisle who would accuse their opposition of trying to keep problems in place so they have something to run on. Do you think that's been a problem that that we've seen in America in the last two decades? I would put it even more. Um self-critically than that. I, I think since about the year 2000, anytime 
that people like me have had a brainwave. And when I say people like me, I mean people with degrees and who wear neckties to work and who are invited to talk on podcasts like yours. Anytime we've had a brainwave, it has been an absolute calamity for everyone around us. And before 2000, that didn't used to be true. I talk about um, a figure I call the man in the white lab coat. So if you watch a movie from like 1965, anytime there's a man in a white lab coat, he's got the answer. He's the guy who tells you how to shrink a submarine so it's so small it can go inside the human bloodstream. Or he tells you how the time machine works, he tells you how you're going to get into outer space. And he steps forward and he, he tells you how it's going to be. And that's how it's going to be. After about 1975 in the movies, anytime you see a guy in a white lab coat, he's a lunatic. He's a maniac. He, he's saying things like, why don't we revive the dinosaurs and not have proper safety equipment to control them? Right. That, that, and, 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 and we're going to see him at the end of the movie disappearing down the throat of Tyrannosaurus Rex. You're um, right. I'm thinking of movies so I, now, and that's right. That's how we yeah. see them. It's a man of the... Right, right. Nutty think, professor. Well, if it's black and white, then Man in the White Matt Labcoat is a hero if the movie is in black and white, and he's a villain if the movie is in color. And um, and just think of what people have been through since the year 2000. So uh, the dot-com bust, um, 9-11, which was a mistake that it was a really bad management by the United States. We should have prevented it. The Iraq war, the, the housing bubble, the global financial crisis, the weak recovery from the financial crisis. I mean, just the people were looking for um, answers from those who told them they knew best and the answers didn't work out. And Donald Trump stepped into that void. Now, here's how I think we're going to fix it is in this pandemic. I was going there. Oh God, people, you're stealing my question, David, but good. Keep are, going. Are, 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 <laughs> no, keep going. That's exactly where I wanted to go. Go for it. In, in this pandemic, we're suddenly discovering knowing what you're talking about is actually a tremendous advantage. Right. I mean, you you actually said, I, I want to talk about your book, Trumpocalypse, um, but I, I'm enjoying the conversation, so I'm kind of letting it go where it goes. But you mentioned in the book at some point that the word apocalypse actually doesn't mean uh, catastrophe like we have come to think of apocalypse meaning, but it, it means a beginning. And so... I do wonder if Trump's the catalyst for, have we hit rock bottom here? And is he a catalyst for that? And, and you know, we are seeing perhaps with the Anthony Fauci's um, being respected. I mean, poll numbers show that even with the White House coming after him, people are still respecting that particular man in a white lab coat. So is this pandemic and Trump along with it? Is that the apocalypse? Is the Trump apocalypse actually, hopefully, the rock bottom beginning that we that we are able to kind of grow back from? Is that your hope? Well, pe people um, with religious backgrounds will recognize the word apocalypse, as you say, doesn't mean the um, catastrophe, zombie apocalypse. That's how we use it in everyday you, speech. You say it. You say it in your book. I can't take credit for it. You're the one who said. But but what what literally it means is it, it's from two Greek words that mean to lift off, to take the. Uh, it's like an unveiling. It's a revelation. It's a glimpse of things to come. And so that's what I tried to do in this, in this, in this book from Harkless. And I think um, we have these possibilities now. I, I talk a lot when I talk about the president about what I call the gifts of Trump. Perversely, he's made a lot of things possible that weren't possible before. Uh, I, I don't think that the Me Too movement would have happened in the way it did if Donald Trump were president. And I think a lot of 
Um, and not that everything in the Me Too movement is positive, but I think it's mostly a social positive. And in the same way, I mean, most of the Black Lives Matter, this reborn, it started, I guess, six years ago, but in this reborn Black Lives Matter movement um, that is calling the country to conscience now. Again, I, I, there are parts of it that I think are unhealthy. I, I think um, Thomas Jefferson and George Washington are great men, and, and I will argue with anybody who says otherwise. But um, but it is calling the country to its conscience in, in a way that is a real American tradition. And it would not be so powerful if we didn't feel so frightened and ashamed of ourselves. And Donald Trump made us more frightened and made us more ashamed of ourselves. And that way, he left the door open for conscience to come calling. Tara Setmeyer was on the uh, podcast last week, and we were talking a little bit about cancel culture. And she she mentioned that she did not necessarily believe that the strength of the cancel culture arguments was the new normal, and perhaps it was more uh, a counterbalancing of of Trump um, as a as. I don't want to use the word hate, but being so full of what a lot of people would call hate, <laughs> that that this cancel culture is is sort of the counterbalance, that the media has jumped in and been a little bit more, not biased, but certainly more provocative in some of their leftward-leaning opinions, not as the new normal, but as a, as a counterweight to what Trump has done or what he has said. Um, do you think that that settles down if he goes? I, I was one of those who signed that Harper's letter. The Harper's letter, that, right. Um, like, like that's um, caused a lot of attention. And I, I'm, I'm honestly kind of surprised at how much attention it got, which is nice. None of it was my doing. I just, I, I just took a ride on the bus. Other people um, built the bus and filled the bus with, with gas, but I, I was on the bus. Um, uh, I have to say that, um, what, what I worry about with, with cancel culture is I, I don't want to make a, um, a big point about how things were or how things are, but here, here's what, what social media has enabled us to do is to be more intimately nasty to each other than we ever used to be before. Um, and I worry about this much less for myself. I've got a pretty thick skin. I've been in public life for a long time and it, it takes a lot to bother me. Uh, but I, there's a lot of, um, studies and social about how the present generation of young people are seem very much more unhappy than young people did 20 and 30 years ago. And it, what seems to happen is they, they just, um, you know, that beach boy song in my room, I, I can be alone in my room. And the, the person, yeah, that's where I take my secrets and my sadnesses to, well, no one who's born since the invention of the iPhone is alone in their room in his or her room. That, that all the mean people, everything hurtful that would happen at school follows them right into their room. There's no escape. And I, I don't think people are worse, but the technology is better. And that allows people to be um, haunted and hunted in a way that they just didn't used to be before. And in, in, in our um, public life, yeah, I, I don't think we're any different than the way we used to be. I don't think we're more cancel prone or less cancel prone, but it's more intimate and more inescapable. And, because the technology is so much more powerful than it used to be, I think we we have to step back a little bit and we have to have a more gentle manner because we understand, you know, the, the, I, I at one point in my career wrote speeches for President Bush. And I remember the first time I did it, 
Uh, so I'd been a journalist. And the biggest problem with being a journalist is how do you get the reader's attention? You need a sexy lead. You need a snappy title. You need to get people. Um, mm-hmm. So I was writing stuff like that, and I was throwing it all away because I, it hit me. The president of the United States never has to worry about getting people's attention. <laughs> He's got it. What he has to worry is about scaring them to death. So everything, you, you, when you write for the president, it's like, um, I, I, again, I'm old enough. I remember making the transition from wooden tennis rackets to carbon fiber tennis rackets. <laughs> and suddenly you no longer knew how to play the game of tennis because every shot went out of them because the, the rackets were so much more powerful. And so it is when you, when, you, uh, when you wrote for the president that his words were more powerful than my words as a journalist. And I had to dial everything back. And with social media, the things you might say are more powerful. The, the gossipy remarks, the, the cutting comments on the way somebody behaved or the clothes they wore that you might have once said on the phone. You, you say that on social media and it draws blood. And we all are going to have to be, this new technology is a fact. We're all going to have to Why be does it draw blood, more forgiving. Though? Does it draw blood because of, of the nature of being somewhat more public or does it draw blood because journalists are using Twitter to is it social media that's amplifying these individuals' voices, or is it regular mainstream media who amplifies it when they take what's being said on Twitter and turn it into a news story? I mean, it, what what is it that six million people in the country are active on Twitter? Is that right? And but do they get more attention than they probably should? So, if I can be personal with you about you for a minute, so mm-hmm. um, you have been one of the most famous people in the world. Um, and you have been one of the most famous people in the world at, at a time before social media. And every a lot of people had a lot of opinions about things that were none of their business. And if you didn't want to know about that, you didn't have to know about it. Um, I mean, if you got curious, you could have somebody bring you the, um, the press news. But the idea that you would carry a device in your pocket that when you, set, when you decided, I, I'd like to order pizza or call my mom – um, would bring to you every hurtful, cruel thing that anybody right. on earth had to say about you. Um, you know, it, it's a nightmare. Why did wax replicants crowd an Italian church? And what do wax organs tell us about the history of medicine? Why does the Minotaur still intrigue us? And why would its bovine mouth crave human flesh? Hi, I'm Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. Join us on the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast for the entire month of October as we take our annual descent into a host of bloody, monstrous, and terrifying topics. From forest spirits that beckon you off the path to wax sculptors on a rampage, we'll be looking at spooky subjects all this month to peel away the flesh and reveal the underlying science and history and leave you with an even richer understanding of a world that's always weirder than we can imagine. What sorts of scientific concepts can we glean from episodes of The Outer Limits or Tales from the Dark Side? And what's the ghastly history and promising future of blood substitutes? Join us to find out. New Halloween-themed episodes published twice a week with older Vault episodes re-entering the world on Saturdays to spread around some of last year's grisly offerings. Listen to the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I knew they were going to kill him. Please say FBI. This is Fight Night, a new podcast from iHeartRadio. This is the story about two guys from opposite sides of the street. 
a hustler blamed for robbing the most dangerous gangsters in the country. This is like issued a, a death warrant for me for something that I don't even know anything about. And the cop who tried to save his life. They thought he had robbed a deadliest man in this country. Guys who would not hesitate to blow your head off. In 1970, Muhammad Ali triumphantly returned to the ring. At the hustlers party that followed, gangsters from around the country were robbed of a million dollars. This story from Atlanta, Georgia, has been reported for 50 years. But now, for the first time, you're going to hear what really happened from the people who lived it. Listen and follow Fight Night on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Well, I was, in, I was there in, that, in the beginning of it, because I remember when we were on Idol, we, we stayed at a hotel uh, in, in West Hollywood area. And there was one computer in the hotel, and the Idol website had a Idol website had a message board on it, and all that hurtful stuff was available to you if you wanted to go downstairs. And there were a few of us um, whose names I won't name who were far more eager to go and check that computer in the lobby and check that message board. And then there were some of us, myself included, who tried to avoid it. Um, but I. I was, you know, I was famous in that period where things were starting to get, there was no Twitter, you're right. But yeah, it was a little bit more in my face. And, I'm, and I appreciate the fact that I learned to have that same thick skin, too, because I, I saw it, it was available to me, it was a, probably a little bit more in my face. And when it's about you, it's always a bigger deal than you think it is, than, than the rest of the people in the world do. And so, yeah. And I was, yeah, it was very hurtful, but I'm far more, if someone says something nasty about me on Twitter now, I laugh and retweet it. Um, you know, it doesn't bother me. But I do wonder if this particular, I mean, I'm just looking right now at this Politico poll. Politico did a poll with Morning Consult about um, uh, cancel culture in general. And it said members of Generation Z are the most sympathetic to punishing people over offensive views, followed by millennials, while Gen Xers and baby boomers have the strongest antipathy towards it. And it goes on to, you know, I won't read all the numbers, but essentially this cancel culture, this um, eagerness to use social media to both cause offense and get offense is certainly more prevalent in Generation Z and Millennials, whereas Gen Xers, which I'm a part of, and Baby Boomers aren't for it. A, is this the future, if the younger generations are going to be like this? Is this what we have to look forward to? And B, is it is it a generational thing because these younger generations have not learned to have the coping mechanisms um, <laughs> that maybe older generations have? Look, I, I think we've, we've got um, a new way to hurt ourselves. It's like the coming of the automobile. We're good at uh, that. <laughs> no one had ever moved. People hadn't moved that fast before, and now they did. And it had many created many opportunities. It created whole new areas of the economy, but it also created new ways to hurt others and yourself. And we had to learn over, and it took a while. We had to learn how do you drive, how, what technologies do you put in this device so that it's less hurtful, um, and how do we reduce the toll? And I think social media, it's not... I mean, this is a metaphor because it doesn't literally kill people. Although one of my daughter's friends. Uh, uh, it does. It does. Suicide. Yeah, it absolutely but, does. I mean, I, we, I mean, when I was a, when I was a teenager, I never, I mean, I, you read about suicide. I never knew anyone who committed suicide. My, but my children know people who've committed suicide and right. died of drug overdoses. Um, and, uh, and it's not, I, I, it's simple minded to blame social media exactly, but it, it doesn't help. Um, so we're going to have to, 
figure out just the, uh, the equivalent of the seatbelt and the airbag and the no drunk driving rules that allowed us to make the car a less deadly, a less deadly thing. I um, sort of love this metaphor. <laughs> I really like this car metaphor so much, but, and, and so I wonder, I mean, I, I, it makes me feel a little bit less afraid of social media. I'm not kidding you just in this moment that, that something that was new and fresh and dangerous we learned how to deal with, right? But, but can we do the same thing? Can we do the same thing in the political world, though? I mean, is essentially what you're what you're saying is social media is something that we have to accept is here. Some of these pitfalls and challenges of it are things that we're going to have to accept are here, and we're just going to have to learn how to work around them or work within them or work within that new normal. I want to go back to this: the Republican Party in general. Is that what the Republican Party is going to have to do? Is it going to have to accept that this Trumpism or this um, this enthusiasm from that particular Trump base is the new normal of the Republican Party, and Republicans will have to learn how to work within that? Or is there a way to reclaim the Republican brand after Trump? Um, well, what I hope Republicans will do is they will say to the many people, not the enabler is not the word, but the many people who put their trust in Donald Trump and have been abused and now find themselves out of work or sick, say, we, we heard what you were saying and we offered you snake oil. And what we need to do is, is to take a little bit of time to think about what can we set, offer that would be useful? Real solutions. Um, you uh, you want to not fear bankruptcy when you get sick, but you don't want to have the government in all of your business. And you want us to design a system so you don't get bankrupt when you get sick, but you don't have the government in your business all the time. So we're going to, we're going to work on that. And, um, you know, you absolutely want to see if someone has a great idea or a great product that they get to make the money and that they can advance themselves and they can pass it on to their children. They, they have all the incentives they need to be creative. But you also want to know that if, if people have bad luck, they're, they're not going to, I mean, it's a rich country. They're not going to go hungry or sleep on the curb. You, you want the cop, you want scope for enterprise and you want a safety net. Okay. We, we're going to go work on that. And um, uh, you want to have a strong national defense so that you can live in security, but you don't want to get dragged into every fight going on everywhere on earth. Okay, got it. And, and just, I think, go through that. You know? And, and you, you, you want to value work and family and, and faith, but you don't want us to insult and belittle people who, have, who live in a slightly different way. Um, got it. Okay. So we're, we're just going to take, we're going to do like a little sabbatical here. <laughs> and, Again, and we're going to work on, yeah, we're going to go workshop, workshop all of these various notes you've given us on our script. So, so and, and, it, uh, um, you talk a little bit about the book and about healthcare and and believing that national service wouldn't be as good as the private sector, um, but you but you do say that you think oversight is important. Um, has this pandemic changed your opinion on that at all? I mean, you wrote the book before this hit; nobody saw it coming. Do you has this pandemic and the people losing their private health insurance because their employers they lost their jobs? I mean, has that changed your view at all? I think the healthcare system has been one of the parts of American society that has behaved that has failed least in the pandemic. So I think I think the pandemic casts a very negative light on a lot of parts of American life. But what, um, but the problem is not when we talk about healthcare, we mean two things. 
we mean medicine, uh, the doctors, uh, the specialists who treat us once we get sick. And we mean public health. Those are the people who help us before we get sick. So the fact that you can have a glass of water and not get sick, that's not, that's, that's not your doctor's job. That's the public health service to make sure that the water is treated so you can drink the water and you don't get sick. Um, you know, it's not your doctor who, who is in charge of stopping you from smoking. Uh, we have a whole public health system that says, don't smoke, it'll kill you. Um, what failed in, in the pandemic was the U.S. public health service, not the medical. I mean, if you actually get, God forbid, get the disease and end up in a hospital, I mean, there's, there's no intensive care unit on earth where I'd rather be than an American intensive care unit. But other countries are doing a much better job of keeping their people out of the intensive care unit in the first place. And that's our failure. We've had a failure of state capacity um, and a failure of people in government to listen to experts. Those are the things that, are, that I, I, am, I find most shaming. Uh, you know, look at the Centers for Disease Control. Dr. Redfeld, who's the head of the Centers for Disease Control, now, um, he's not incompetent to the job, but he's not one of the top hundred people that you would pick for the job. What he, he, Dr. Redfeld was someone who came from a very, very socially conservative connection and had been a prominent social conservative. And all the prominent social conservatives, he was the best doctor. And so the, the hiring credential was your ideology. And then within the people with the ideology, let's get the best doctor. That's not a failure of our healthcare system. That's a failure of other things in the American government. The politicization of the public health part. Uh, you're saying that, that yeah, some of these but, people are political appointees. Like, so so here, here, I'm speaking to you, as, as we said at the beginning, from the province of Ontario and in Canada. Uh, the premier, the equivalent of the governor of the province of Ontario is a man named Doug Ford, who's a very Trumpy-style politician. Um, bombastic and um, can be kind of hot-headed. Is that the dude who had... More. Oh, Is that the dude who had the crack problem? That's his brother. His, his oh, brother. Oh, okay. It's the brother of the guy. <laughs> okay. uh, for, so, forgive okay. me, Doug Ford. <laughs> so Doug Ford, he's a very um, rough-hewn kind of politician. Uh, but Ontario's done a really good job. Why? Well, because it had a proper civil service. There was a chief medical officer of the province who was not hired by the premier. He just He inherited him. And then this pandemic strikes, and the, the elected people turn to the experts and say, what should we do? And they say, well, as a matter of fact, um, a lot of people whose job it is to worry about these things, I've been thinking about these things for the past 15 years, ever since SARS back in the early 2000s. And we, we got a bunch, a bunch of files on the shelf. So here's the plan. You want to change anything, fine, you're the politicians, but the plan's ready when you are not in charge of writing a whole new plan. Uh, what happened in the United States was that whole system of there are things in the drawers wasn't there because Donald, and that's partly a personal fault of Donald Trump, but it's also that those people, even if Donald with the best world will in the world, those people would have left office. With but Anthony Fauci has been there since Reagan. Anthony Fauci has been there Anthony since Fauci, Reagan. Yeah. Deborah yeah. Burks has been there for a long time. But we're talking about hundreds of people. We're talking about the right. you know, assistant secretaries of the Department of Health and Human Services. Um, th those people turn over in, a, in the United States in a way that they don't elsewhere. And then Donald Trump has done, has done an especially bad job of replacing them. But in other countries... Um, they don't get replaced every election. That it's a real career. You want to be the chief. You want to work in the, for the, uh, the medical departments in Canada or France or Germany or Britain. That's a career, and you're properly compensated. You don't make as much as you would in the private sector. But you got better vacations and better maternity. And some people take that deal.
But now, David, you know that some people, you know full well that some people are going to say to you that another thing that makes Canada, makes it easier to be successful during a pandemic like this in Canada is that when people have to lose their jobs because of something like this, when they have to go home, when they're furloughed, they don't lose their health insurance. And that's a problem in the U.S. where people have, you know, have lost their health insurance because they've lost their jobs. So uh, what makes the Canadian, how's it, how do you make the argument that having that sort of, you, we've talked about the public health and I don't know that I disagree with you there, but, but the, the health care part, how do you make the argument that what's happening in Canada is not something the U.S. should be trying? Well, um, there are, because there, as with everything in politics he pays your money and you takes your choices so the canadian system and i i can i can walk through things that canada did wrong in this pandemic and there have been problems in the canadian healthcare system too um and basically the the core problem is that when you the, the canadian medicine at its highest tech is never as high tech as american medicine at its highest tech um and canada um you know when you read about these crash programs to work on vaccines they're happening not in Canada, they're happening in other places. So, and I, Germany, I don't mean that as a criticism UK, of Canada right? either. I mean, yeah. <laughs> I mean, they're not all, I mean, yeah, I, I certainly UK, agree that the market has helped in some ways, but they're happening also in places where uh, where the market's not as involved um, as it is in the U.S., right? Yeah, the, the point is just every, everything's trade-offs. And, um, and also, everything depends on where you start from. The, even if you wanted to, if you said to the United States now, okay, let's, let's do the Canadian system. I mean, I think you literally could not do it. Uh, you can't get there from here. You have to build on your own history as a country. And so um, in, in Trumpopolis, I, I make a lot of suggestions, but I always try to say, what is something that could be done in the next two or four years, starting from where the United States actually is? And I think one of the, one of the things that went wrong with... Um, for example, the Bernie Sanders campaign is, is Bernie Sanders was a politician who kept saying he, he would draw these s images in the sky and say, why don't we do this? And I, I, I keep thinking, I, I remember um, when I was, I, I didn't have a long government career, but I, I remember, um, and I'm not, I'm not going to forget the story, actually, some of the details of the story was so long ago, but I remember having an idea that I thought was a really smart idea. And I went to the relevant person to explain my idea. And he listened patiently and agreed it was a good idea. And then he explained, you know, you're not the first one to have, have that idea. In fact, the last person in your job had the same idea. And the person before him in that job also had that same idea. In fact, everyone probably who's had your job <laughs> dating back okay. to the Nixon administration. <laughs> okay. And nothing <laughs> got done idea. or what was it? <laughs> now, let, now, let me tell you why we can't do it. And then it wasn't stupid. It was there was because I just had only seen part of the picture. I'd seen what I needed from my desk. And a lot of what happens in government is you see things from your desk. And um, why can't people do it my way? And it turns out there sometimes the, the reasons are bad, but often the reasons are good. And so when you're we're trading off, I mean, I, I I'll tell you the thing that I, I wouldn't look at the contrast between Canada and the United States and say Americans need the Canadian healthcare system. What I would look at is this. So um, we have two friends who together own a small business here. And it's a, it's a successful business, but it doesn't have a lot of financial resources. And they got hit very hard by the onset of, of the COVID. And they were looking at ruin. Um, and I talked to one of them. So the two of them, the government of Canada had a program where businesses could apply for aid, as the United States did. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, the the grants in Canada were smaller. The maximum you could get was I think forty thousand Canadian dollars. But to fill out the application took twenty minutes. To file the application took two minutes. To be approved took two minutes, and to get the money in your bank account took two days. <laughs> and no one who went through the and that for that for and the deal was you got the forty thousand dollars, and if you paid it back within um, two years. You, if you paid it back within two years, you only had to pay back 30000 So you got 25% of the loan written off wow. if you could repay it within two years. But if you need more time, then you have to pay back the loan in full with a pretty low interest rate. So that, for a lot of small businesses, was the difference between life and death. And it happened fast, and it happened competently, um, and it happened without favoritism. And I, I look at the United States, I think the biggest failures were not the failures of the hospitals and doctors and nurses and, and that part of the healthcare system. The biggest failures were that the support to businesses was ridden with favoritism. It was incredibly slow and inefficient. And then the whole public health system. I mean, it doesn't do any good to have the world's greatest medicine if you're go- the governor of your state won't tell people to wear a mask because he's afraid of upsetting the president. Do you... Th- it's good to, as, I'm going to say this as frankly as I can. Do you think you're too reasonable and logical for politics today? I mean, whether you whether you disagree with someone or not, if your if your goal is to look for pragmatic solutions, which it sounds like to me is is a goal of yours, is there any place for someone like you in the American political system right now? It seems to me like there's not there's no success for any politician on either side of the aisle, unless they are the furthest left, I mean, furthest left or the furthest right. We see that that while Biden did get the nomination, folks on the far left are still very upset about it. Um, what this week we saw, we today, I think it was, um, the Republican House conference is coming for Liz Cheney because she's not died in the wool supporting Trump on every single move. They want her to be removed from that. I mean, is there a place in American politics for anyone who's not on the far farthest wing of their party? Well, I'll take what you say as both a compliment and a criticism. And, <laughs> well, and uh, it's really I'll only a compliment and a and a a compliment and no, a and a fear. No, <laughs> no but you're you're so here's it's a big political system and there are different places for, for different people. So um, one of the things that politicians do, and you, you ran for office, you know this, that politicians have to connect with people who don't think about politics all the time and who have emotions and identity. And um, I, I've spent a lot of my life around politicians and, and for the most part, I really respect them. I do a different thing from what they do. Um, but what they do is really important, which is they engage with people at the emotional level, which is how decisions are made. And then what happens, then the politician wins, and then they need answers. They need to think, well, what, how do I keep my promise? And uh, the gap between what, where the voters are and where um, the experts are, a lot of mischief. I mean, one of my the, the political stories that I've thought about the most over my life was a moment that happened in, in 1992. And um, this is the famous feel your pain moment, although Bill Clinton didn't literally say feel your pain. So there, there are debates between 
President Bush and Ross Perot and Bill Clinton in 1992. And the last of the three debates was a town hall format hosted by Carol Simpson. People may remember her from ABC. Uh-huh, of course. And, and uh, she called on questions in the audience and a woman stood up who was uh, an older black woman, obviously incredibly nervous about being on TV for the first and probably, only, probably the only time in her life. And uh, she had some notes in front of her and she, she was really, and she knew that 20 million people are watching this and, and it was in her head. Um, so she was, she was nervous and she, she said, I'd like to ask each of the candidates how you personally have been affected by the deficit. Okay. Panic. In the eyes of all okay. Personally, I'm thinking how, how I, <laughs> right. No, what are you talking about? Are you, you know, uh, so uh, poor president Bush has to go for, First, I'll cut the story short because, but he flubs it, and Ross Perot goes second, and he says something characteristically insane, and then <laughs> it's Bill Clinton's turn, and he steps to that huge body. He steps toward this little little woman, and he comes up to her and says, "Nose to nose, I'll answer your question, but first you have to answer a question for me. How have you been affected by the deficit?" And she started to answer, and as she answered, it became clear. She didn't mean the deficit at all. She meant the recession that was also happening at the same time. Uh-huh. Maybe she got it mixed up under the pressure of being on TV. Maybe she never knew the difference in the first place. But the main thing was she was speaking a foreign language. Politics was not her language. Um, and she had tried to write a question that was suitable for television, expressing the anxieties that were real in her life. And okay, so Cl- once Clinton got what she was talking about, bang, out of the park. And that was the idea right. your pain answer, which she didn't actually say. But but we always need to be mindful that there's a gap between people who think about this a lot and people who don't think about it so much. And and it's our job to serve serve them. So um, you know, I've worked for politicians. So I, I I'm not a I'm never going to be a I'm too cerebral. I'm too detached. I'm now that's that's not my work. Um, but there, there are people, what my work is, is to help the people who do connect more emotionally and to make them proper public servants instead of predators and exploiters. And another part of my work is then to say to the public, you know, if you have a moral intuition that somebody just shouldn't have a lot of power because he's a bad guy, you're right about that. Do you think you'll be able to do that with Republicans in the future? Um, I think we, the Republicans, unfortunately, are going to have to learn their lesson right now through pain. I mean, there are a lot of people who will say behind closed doors about Donald Trump, many of the things that, that I've been saying here. Um, we need them to say it in the open air, but they're too scared. And they need to pay a price. They need to pay a price. Um, this whole thing was a terrible mistake. And we need to learn from it. And at first, and the, the Look, the price of the mistake is being paid by people who are have lost their jobs, lost their businesses, who are sick or who are coping with the, the illness of a loved one. That, they're paying the price in the first place. But in the second place, politically, um, Republicans need to internalize this. Did, this gamble you made on Donald Trump that he could somehow bulldoze your way, your your policy, it's not going to work. So you have to do better. Um, so there's going. What I think what's going to happen is this: um, the Democrats are going to win. I think pretty big. Uh, in 2020, at the state level too, um, that's going to mean that the Democrats are going to have a lot of power to rewrite the map, the political map of the United States after the census of 2020. And it's going to be more difficult for Republicans to win elections in the 2020s than it was when they gerrymandered the board their way in the 2010s. 
um, and they're going to have to re-engineer to be more competitive. But the good news is, you know what? There are new issues all the time. Um, there are new problems are going to come up, and the Biden administration, the Democratic state governments, they're going to make mistakes. And a new generation of politicians can step forward and talk about those new issues. And especially the people who weren't in politics in 2016 uh, can say they had nothing to do with Donald Trump. I, I have a tweet pinned to the top of my feed that says, when this is all over, nobody will admit to ever having been for it. And I think that's going to be true. I think that that 10 years from now, um, you are not going to be able to find a Republican, an active Republican anywhere who will admit they ever had a moment of time for Donald Trump. So in the two camps of people, those who believe the Republican Party has destroyed itself uh, and will main, remain a Trumpist party and will remain a far right or wherever, wherever he lands on the spectrum, uh, and that if anything, there might be a opportunity for a third party, Lincoln-type project party to come out. And then the other group of people who still have faith that the Republican Party has not completely ruined its brand to a point that they cannot be salvaged, you'd say you fall in that second category? I'm more in the second camp. But here, here's what, I, what I'll also say about that. Um, what, what, what we're all about to discover in the election of 2020 is that the people who really like Donald Trump, really like him, even now, it's maybe 25, 28% of the country, um, older, whiter, um, more rural. They, they, um, you cannot govern with those people. There are just not enough of them to form the government. Uh, but there, there are enough of them to make it very difficult to govern the United States. So the, the big problem in American life going forward is how do you integrate that 25 to 28%? Uh, into a functioning democratic system, even if they don't necessarily share totally democratic lowercase d values. And that's how I end the book is talking about how do we, how do we reclaim um, our fellow citizens who have turned against democratic values for democratic values. But the idea that um, the people, the politicians, the Dan Crenshaw's, the Donald Trump juniors, Dan Crenshaw's pretty smart. Donald Trump junior is not um, who, who think they're going to be able to, <laughs> well, Donald Trump basically did. <laughs> What Donald Trump did was he took the mortgage money to the casino and bet it on red 32 and he won. And uh, that, that was amazing. I didn't think he could do it, but he did. And now he says he, his plan for 2020 is to take the mortgage money again to the casino and bet it again. And it, the fact that that paid off once doesn't make it a good retirement planning strategy. <laughs> it's still... It's, <laughs> I want to, I want to move. We had, we, we told people that you were going to be on uh, the podcast this week. We got a whole bunch of questions. I want to pull just a few of them for you from our listeners. Um, uh, so there'll be a little bit, some of them be a little bit random. Um, uh, we're finally coming home from the Middle East. I don't have a name for these for some reason um, or who they're from. So if you're listening and, and this is your question, I apologize. We're finally coming home from the Middle East. Did we win the war on terror? Um, two parts to that question. Uh, first, um, the United States and the other developed countries really did reduce uh, the, the risk and damage from Middle Eastern Islamic terrorism after after 9-11. Um, from 
the attack on the first World Trade Center in the early 90s to 9-11, Middle East terrorist attacks got more and more sophisticated, more and more deadly, um, culminating with the 9-11 attacks. For the 10 years after 9-11, they became less sophisticated, less able to reach us. Um, but terrorism as a method is, is always there. And anything that we said in the Bush years that suggested you could ever get rid of terrorism as a method... That's not possible because it's just too easy. And, and now um, we have new terrorist movements, some of these white nationalist terrorist movements that are um, the deadliest threat to people in the United States. Uh, so just as we once took seriously the threat, the external threat from um, Islamic terrorism from the Middle East, um, change in the Middle East, you know, uh, you're seeing a huge reduction in the number of young Middle Eastern people who call themselves very religious in surveys in the region, um, that they are turning against um, the hateful ideas that were in their culture. We have to do the same with the hateful ideas that are in, in our culture. Or maybe they just aren't doing terrorizing us because we're screwing ourselves up enough. They don't feel like that they can beat what we're doing to ourselves. We also fixed some mistakes. We, we um, you know, we made it easier for the FBI and the CIA to talk to each other. Um, we uh, hardened airline co- uh, pilot, uh, hardened airline cockpits. Um, we introduced, you know, we have a, a more effective national ID system. You know, one of the things I am haunted by is of the uh, 19 men who um, took part in the hijacking on 9/11. There was one who, to put it bluntly, didn't want to do it. Um, and so he was, he was heading to, I'm now going to forget the exact details on his story, but he was, he was heading from, uh, on I-95 toward um, Kennedy Airport, and he s- drove at an incredible rate of speed. And one of the basic rules of terrorism, I'm, I've never been a terrorist, but one of the, is when you're going to the, um, on, when you're on your way to a spectacular terrorist operation, you drive the speed limit, especially when you are using a fake driver's license. But <laughs> He, and he was pulled over and the police found his fake driver's license and they didn't figure out that it was a fake driver's license. And so this guy who clearly wanted badly to be arrested and to spend the night in jail to miss his flight so he wouldn't have to smash on the side of the building, that could have saved us all. That guy was allowed to go on his way. Well, now the driver's licenses are better. I mean, the Real ID Act, I mean, the, um, we now have more of a national identity system. So we, we've done some things, some things right since 9-11. Okay, well, I'm going to use that at the end of that answer to swing into this other question from Cody in Pittsburgh. Um, In light of COVID, and piggybacking off your last comment, is it time to reconsider federalism? Uh, Well, that's a hugely open-ended question. Um, (laughs) These are from our listeners. I don't write them. I just um, read them, but I think it's a big one for sure. So, look, one of the things that... that, um, the pandemic showed was the power of federalism, that we have done a lot of experimenting in a lot of different states. And we have learned a lot from the state competition, what works and what doesn't. And and the same thing that has allowed um, Governor DeSantis in Florida and to behave badly and Governor Kemp in Georgia to behave worse um, has, also, has also allowed Ohio to do well and Michigan to do well um, and has allowed us to learn from each other. Uh, I think one of the things that if we're talking, one that's of the very, don't you think that's a very optimistic point of view, though? I mean, that's a that's that's that was a very positive spin to put on that. Um, is there not the argument that well, had there been a little bit less federalism, had there been a more of a natural a national um, plan for this, then governors like the one in Georgia wouldn't have been able to screw it up as much as they have. 
Uh, President Trump had all the resources he needed. The reason we didn't have a national response is not because of the federal system. It's because Donald Trump wanted to avoid responsibility um, and wanted to and was bored and wanted to think about the next thing. Look, if the, the president of the United States, the pandemic responses that President Trump inherited from um, President Bush and President Obama, and th this is one of the areas where, I mean, I think future generations are going to look back and say, it's actually weird how much was continuous between President Bush and Obama. Because Bush was the president who, Partly because of some books he read, partly because of the experience of the 2005 bird flu, got freaked out about the risk of pandemic and started calling for planning papers. And then the planning and the planning papers arrived in time for President Obama um, to say, OK, we're going to make this an important part of it. And then the, 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 the question Bush asked became the answer Obama delivered. And Donald Trump sabotaged all of that because he didn't want to do the work. Uh, but he had the resources. That was not a federal system thing. But here's, if, if we're making one change to the federal system, here's the one I would make, um, which is it, we need um, to put an end to this practice where state politicians get to draw the borders of state and federal constituencies and get to gerrymander their states the way they want. In North Carolina, your state is Amen. A, I'm trying a, not a to be biased, but amen. <laughs> but Wisconsin was worse. Wisconsin was worse even than, and um, and it's crazy. And what we need, look, when, when the Supreme Court in 2013 um, struck down portions of the Voting Rights Act of 1965, so this is, a, I, among liberals, and this is a big red flag issue, um, uh, Holder versus Shelby County, the Supreme Court said the Voting Rights Act of 65, big parts of it are irrational. That was not a crazy decision. What the Supreme Court was saying was the Voting Rights Act of 65 said, you as a state or a county or a town, you got scrutiny from the federal government, federal department of justice, according to how good or bad an actor you had been in the year 1965. So if like the state of Hawaii, you'd been a bad actor in 1965, you got special scrutiny in 2013. And if like the state of Wisconsin, you'd been a good actor in 1965, you didn't get the scrutiny in 2013, no matter how bad an actor you really were. And Wisconsin is the worst North of the Mason-Dixon line. And, Justice Roberts says, that's irrational. That's just irrational. And he was right. And then he said, so we're going to strike this down and we're going to kick this over to Congress, write a Voting Rights Act. We're not saying it's unconstitutional. Write a new one that is rational, that isn't drawn on the basis of what, you, what was going on in your state in 1965. So Congress didn't do that, but we need to do it now. And, and we need to understand that you, can be a, you could have been a bad actor in 65 and be a good actor now and the other way around. And Wisconsin proves this. They were a good actor in the 60s. And now they're the most gerrymandered state in the North. In 2018, if I remember this right, Republicans got about 45% of the vote in the Wisconsin um, legislative elections, and they got 65% of the seats. Right. Well, you will get no argument from me there. And I uh, want to shout that you uh, brought it up in the first place because I 100% agree. Um, Last question, Simon from Biloxi. Um, what advice would you give the Republican Party? Oh, um, look, I've been giving advice to the Republican Party since um, 2006, and I, I, with singular lack of success. So I, I'm not going <laughs> to recapitulate here. What would have been failing to that? If you could wave a magic um, wand and, let, make let, a big, and make a change. Uh, okay, well, I, I can make one, one change. Uh, it would be this. Um, the future is not shrinking the electorate to fit your party. The future is growing your party to fit the electorate. You just have to accept every American has a right to vote and American votes should count equally. Um, and you have to figure out why, you know, you, look, 
We don't want to live in a world in which we get 98% of the people voting for one party. That's not freedom. You know, uh, you know, if, uh, uh, it's, it's a competitive process where the parties compete. And not everyone should be a Republican, not everyone should be a Democrat. But in my vision, the Republican Party should be the party for people who um, work in the private sector, not the public sector. Um, more business-oriented, less labor-oriented, have a little bit more rather than have a little bit less. Um, and, and so you need to think, okay, who should be in that party and isn't? Like, if, if you've got um, a family of Indian immigrants who own, who build a chain of 20 motels and they don't vote for you because they're not Christian and you've told them that only Christians are Americans, that's, that's the problem. If you've got um, a gay partner in an accounting firm and he's, you know, um, feeling paying a lot of tax because he doesn't get any of the deductions. And he's wondering, why am I paying, you know, 52% of my income in taxes? Uh, that guy should be voting for you. You shouldn't be insulting him. You know, if you've got, um, you just go through the list of people who are, I mean, there are people, there are people who shouldn't vote for you. If you're, you know, if you're a center right, the center right, you know, if you, if you are, you get it. Okay. You're the, you, you're in a teacher's union. I get it. You're not going to vote for us because we are always going to be like the people sort of squinting suspiciously at the school budget. Okay. Where the people say no, uh, when the public sector makes ass. So if you're a public sector person, but if you're a private sector person, we shouldn't insult you away from voting for us when you have every reason to vote for us. So th those are the things. And, and, Above all, we shouldn't be saying, well, let's scheme and plot so we can make sure that black people and brown people and young people don't get to vote at all. That's really out of bounds. Every week, somebody says something that I think should be on a bumper sticker or a T-shirt. You just did it there. You said, I want you to say it again. Don't shrink the don't, don't shrink, shrink the, electorate. the electorate to fit your party. Instead, grow, grow the party. Grow your party to fit Marvelous. I want to I want to leave it there. The book is Trumpocalypse, Restoring American Democracy. David Frum um, writes in this book as well as he just spoke with that perfectly suited for a T-shirt or a bumper sticker uh, <laughs> phrase. Um, and Trump, not not just Trumpocalypse, but also um, your other book, Trumpocracy, which was the first, um, your, your first book in the Trump administration, uh, The Corruption of the American Republic, right. which, which your publisher sent to me for this. <laughs> so, I've had two books I've got, I've had been able to read this week. And, and if you're listening, I really think you should grab them both, honestly. But Trump, Trumpocalypse just came out um, in, uh, in May of this year. So, uh, it's hot off the presses. Please go pick it up and grab it. What's going to be the, th we were, we were debating before you, before, um, the recording tonight, what the third in the trilogy might be called. What do you think? What do you think it might, might there be? Gonna be I, I am, when, when I'm up here in Ontario, this is my book writing time. I am working on another book, but it's on a completely different subject, an historical one. I, I hope, um, the American people will make it possible for me after January this year, never to say, or the name Trump or think the word Trump ever again in my life. That works for me. Although I did, although I did put forth um, Trump carceration. If for some reason you uh, ended up doing a third one, <laughs> that's, that's fantastic. Oh my god, I, that's so good. That's what I think it should be. <laughs> so, David right. from thank you, thank you so much. This was this was really an incredible discussion, and I appreciate it so much. Um, I appreciate y'all who have sent in questions as well, and those who are listening. Please don't forget to like, rate review, subscribe. Uh, we'll be back next week to try to figure out how the heck are we going to get along. 13 days of Halloween. A remote hotel, the most unusual guests, a tour guide that can't be trusted. 
And the newest arrival is you. Why are you here again? You sound like someone you trust. I know you care me. Starring Keegan-Michael Key as the caretaker. Please make yourself at home. After all, this is it. One story each night, starting October 19th and ending on Halloween. From iHeartRadio and Blumhouse Television, listen to Aaron Mankey's 13 Days of Halloween on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up? I am Machine Gun Kelly, and look, I know Halloween is going to suck this year because there's no trick-or-treating and all that, but I've got a treat. There's a musical podcast that I made with my friends 24K Golden, Ian Dior, and Dana Dentata, and Satan. Well, Satan's not my friend, but Tommy Lee is, and Tommy Lee is playing Satan. But don't just take it from me. Tell him, Satan. Thanks, dude. It feels great to be playing Satan on this podcast. Listen to Halloween in Hell on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or whatever you get your podcasts on.